It's good to be here uh, with you. We're going to be in Hebrews, finishing off the third uh, chapter today. So we're going to go ahead and jump right in and go ahead and read that. It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not hear, harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt and were led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. So I, I, I mentioned it before. I'm turning 40 soon. I found myself saying I'm mentioning that again. I, I think I'm okay. Like I don't, keep an eye on me. I don't know. I, I, I think I'm all right. But one of the things that happen around this age I've been thinking about a little bit is, is your body just begins to play really cruel jokes on you, and, and health gets uh, a little bit interesting. Age factors into a lot of things like health concerns and even health-related decisions. One super fun element of this is the doctor around this age will ask men, can we go ahead and, and schedule uh, the exam? And this is, boys, this is not like the physical in high school where you cough. This is something else. The exam is the prostate exam. So I'm entering into that world. That's fun. And age also factors into health. Uh, it not only factors into the health treatments that we receive, but it also factors into the questions the doctor is going to ask you and, and the questions that you kind of need to ask on your own. All of a sudden, family history becomes a, a much bigger deal than it was when you were 20. In my family, we have a couple super fun health wrinkles that I didn't think about when I was younger, one of them being that the men get a Darth Vader mask to sleep in, like the sleep apnea thing. My grandpa has had one for, I mean, he may have been the first one to ever have one. He's had one for a long time. My dad has had one for at least 15 years. He wears it sometimes. Um, and I have started, check on Allie, uh, snoring a lot more lately, which means I'm probably going to get a test for one of those before too long. Like, I'm not going to be able to dodge and weave that for very much longer, probably. Hopefully, I will not keep on the cycle uh, that my family has set, but family history and the repeated nature of a problem, for now, it kind of depends that I pay attention to it and I watch out for it and realize that, hey, that could actually be a possibility for me. Uh, and hear these words because it's kind of our, our transitional understanding. I cannot ignore the evidence about those who came before me. That is the point of this text spiritually in Hebrews. We cannot ignore 
what has happened before us spiritually. We have to pay attention. He points to the history of God's people in this text, and what he does, he goes, hey, there's a consistent issue. Generation after generation after generation, you watch them, and most of them did the exact same thing, and the warning is for the reader and us to acknowledge what that problem was, and then kind of deeper that, hey, you and me, like we, we need to watch out for that because we can end up doing it as well. We mentioned it in uh, the text at the, at the beginning of chapter 2 several weeks ago that the author of Hebrews is going to follow this kind of certain rhythm throughout uh, the book. And, and what we see is the, the author's going to do something. He's going to, since many people are kind of thinking of walking away from Christ, they're seeing cultural pressure and opposition and persecution for their faith. So they're wondering, hey, would I be better off? Would I be happier? Would life be easier if I could just kind of left the Jesus stuff behind? considering that tension of the people who are thinking of walking away, the author just lavishes over and over and over to the readers and to us the supremacy of Christ. That's why this series is titled Jesus is Better. And he's going to say Jesus is the better revelation of God. He is the better prophet. He's the better priest. He's the better king. He's the better apostle, the better hope, the better promise, the better savior. Over and over and over, these statements of Christ's betterness come, and they're declarative statements about Jesus. Right? This is what is true. They're not filled with words. If you watch the text, he's not begging you to believe. He's not saying, oh, please, 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 will you agree with me uh, about these things? He's just saying these are statements of fact about Jesus. These are true about him. This is true about who he is, what he's done, what he promises us, and he invites you not to debate him. He's not interested in debating with you. He's inviting you to believe in that. Now, though the bulk of this book, the author will do that. He'll elevate the supremacy of Christ. He'll encourage us in a really shepherding way of see Jesus. There's going to be times that he moves from declaration to warning. And the tone gets serious and it demands our attention. The author isn't going to try and scare you. Like He's not trying to fire and brimstone you. But he is undoubtedly saying, okay, these things about Jesus, these truths that I've listed over and over and over, if they are true, these truths will require a response from you. Or in other words, these truths have real consequences and implications in your life. I'm going to warn you of ignoring the implications of these things. Because all those things are true, I want you to see this about Jesus. The first warning was about neglecting salvation and the reality of judgment. That came at the beginning of chapter 2. The second warning comes today, and it's about hardening your heart and also missing the rest of God. And the rest is the peace, not like the rest of the unrevealed, the rest that you get from God. As the text opens up today, we hear these words at the very beginning, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says really easy to jump over that part of the text. But the the author then quotes from the Old Testament, from Psalm 95. There's a significant disclosure in this part of the text, though, about Scripture itself. Scripture is authored by God. Yes, it's penned by men, but under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So that means that Scripture isn't the opinions, the, the musings, the preferences, the hopes, or the thoughts of humans. It is inspired by God. It is the Word of the Holy God through the Spirit. B.B. Warfield says, when Scripture speaks, God speaks. Now, when we hear Scripture, when we read Scripture, when we talk about Scripture, when we encounter Scripture, we can be confident that we're encountering God because of that, because God is then speaking to us. 
There's a groundswell, and it's historically happened over and over, and it's happening again now. There's a groundswell that's trying to erode confidence in the Word of God. And what's happening through this groundswell, this, this groundswell is headed somewhere because they believe if they can undercut the Word of God, if they can remove the Word of God, then they can remove the hand of God from culture and also the, the demands and the morality of God. But here's the interesting thing. God can't be erased, and His, world, his Word will stand forever even when people try and undercut it. Now, past our confidence in the overall uh, word of God, the statement means something also. Notice the author says, uh, not that the Holy Spirit said, as in some sort of past tense to, a, to, to another group of people. The text says the author or the Holy Spirit says. He's marking this in a present tense, which means that when he says the Holy Spirit says, he says it not only in Psalm 95 and Old Testament times, but he's saying it to us right now. He's saying these words to those who read it long ago and our hearts. It's for the original audience. It's for the Old Testament people. It's for people who've read it younger than us, and it's for us here now in 2022. This is a big deal for the text because it means what's in this text is not meant to be read as a history lesson about somebody else and their faults and their failures. This text in the living, acting, active Word of God is for our hearts, and it's meant to do its work in us right now. And what is the work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and I right now? Well, it says it's to tell you and me a repeated warning. Do not harden your hearts. Now look at the way the author directly quotes Psalm 95. If you hear his voice, the voice of the Lord by the Holy Spirit, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion like your fathers did on the day of testing. Do not do what they did. Remember the family history piece. Over and over and over, you've seen this repeated pattern. Don't follow their example. Don't do what they did. Do not put the Lord to the test. Uh, even though you've seen all of this great work that he's done, do not put him to the test. So the work of Scripture is to call us not to harden our hearts through this text. Don't do it. All of us. But when are we meant to undertake that? Well, it says that as well today. Today, if you hear His voice, if, if you, if I, today, if we hear His voice, and, we, and we're hearing the voice of the Lord, why? Because the Scripture is the voice of the Lord. If you hear these words, do not harden your heart. This is the message to your soul and mine. Don't do it. Be careful. Don't do it. It, it carries a sense of urgency and immediacy. Today, don't do it. If we zoom out, we see that this wording today is actually mentioned three times in the text. Twice, he says the exact same words, do not harden your hearts today, and then exhort one another as long as it is called today is used as well, which means that this text is kind of jam-packed with a sense of right now, not later, not tomorrow, not when you've got more rest, not when daylight savings is kind of worn off, not when you have less on your schedule. Right now, you have a decision to make. Make one. The decision is will you walk closer with the Lord or will you walk the other way? You and I have a decision about this and the hardness of our hearts. And the Holy Spirit says, I don't, I don't care what you have going on today. This is the decision in front of you. The sense of urgency would have been plain to the Old Testament reader in Psalm 95. And it would have been plain to the audience in Hebrews 3 long ago. But for us to heed this warning, it's a little bit more difficult. And the reason for that is we automatically count on tomorrow. It's a given to us. What are you doing tomorrow? None of us goes, well, I'm, assumes I'd be here. We're like, well, I don't know, man. It's Monday. Going to work. 
we assume we're going to have it. Luther said it, well, today is a day of salvation because today may be our last day. That's why this is important now because you are not entitled to a tomorrow. The modern person doesn't really think this way at all, though. We assume tomorrow. We feel entitled tomorrow. Tomorrow is automatic, while the original audience wouldn't have done that. Now, now hear me. Praise the Lord that we have um, just some really great benefits in 2022. We have modern medicine. We have comforts. We have safety. The fact that uh, antibiotics that are, that are next to, to nothing with a, with a copay at the pharmacy can be given to us to heal something that would have killed the people who originally read that text. That's really good news for us. The fact that we have a government that even with their tons of failures and wherever you stand, we still are not worried about a neighboring country killing us tomorrow. That, that's a blessing that we have. We have running water. We have warm homes. Thank God for that when it's cold all of a sudden. We have cars to travel in and roads to actually travel across the, the country that we live. The fact that we're not worried that if all of a sudden a drought comes that, that many of us are probably going to die is a blessing. But this blessing, it, it brings about a kind of passive, um, probably not understood form of pride in our lives because we don't see the importance of what the Bible calls us to today because we have these blessings that make us just assume tomorrow will work out well. So what do we do because of this pride? We end up putting things off that we shouldn't. We prioritize eternal things under temporal things because we just, hey, man, I got another week, I got another month, I got a whole lot of years. So we can have difficulty understanding this text when it says today because we don't ever think today will be our last day. This means we hear the call to today and we probably in our mind, we kind of compute it to mean something else. We reinterpret it to maybe something akin to agreeing with it or we think of it as something that we should do maybe later, right? As if when the author says, do not harden your heart today, we translate that into, yep, hardening your heart's a bad thing, shouldn't do that. Like, we just agree with it. We don't actually today, like, look at our heart. We just, yeah, that's probably a good statement. Or we think, well, when things slow down, I'm probably going to look at that hard-hearted thing. Got a couple warning signs going on right now. And like that, that might apply to me, but I'm also really busy and my bandwidth is not very high right now. And I got a lot of stuff going on. There's a football game later and you know, all the stuff going on. I'll look at it when life feels easier uh, to manage or when it's at a slower pace, but that's the opposite of what the author wants us to hear. Today, right now, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and to me saying, do not harden heart. There's immediacy right now. Look at it. Now, context. In the text, we hear about this warning to not harden our hearts uh, with the example of a long family history to go with it, right? Like your fathers did in the rebellion. When they, the, the creation, began to put God, the creator, to uh, the test, even though they'd seen his hand work for 40 years, for them, they tested God. So those verses are about a specific time and a specific people in the Old Testament, right? It's in the book of Exodus mostly and part of uh, Numbers as well, where the people of God, Israel, uh, they hardened their hearts after God had delivered them. So here's the scenario. For years and years and years, Israel's under the bondage of Pharaoh and in slavery in Egypt, and they're crying out, God save us, God save us, God save us. Years and years and years, they're praying for God to save them from the crushing weight of the opposition of Egypt, and God heard their prayers. 
Then he sends Moses to go confront Pharaoh in order to answer their prayers, right? To let them go, to, to free them. During that time when Moses came in the order to free them, what did they see? These people who, who, who this text is about in the, in the first uh, part, they would have been the ones who actually saw the plagues, which is the things that God brought to get them free. So they, they would have seen locusts, and they would have seen rivers turn to blood, and they would have seen frogs, and they would have seen hail. They would have seen all of those things that were given in order to free them. They witnessed those themselves. They weren't stories in the page of a book. They're things that they're like, I remember that. That was scary. They actually saw that stuff. They would have been the same people who walked across the Red Sea on dry land. Right When Pharaoh changes his mind, he's coming after them. They have the sea on one side, Pharaoh on the other, and God's like, don't worry, I got this. He splits it. They walk across on dry land. They're the ones who are literally like, how is this dry? How I thought we were going to die. This is insane. They walked across all of it. They're the ones that God kept alive in the wilderness. He literally gave them water out of, of rocks. He led them by a pillar of fire at night so that they wouldn't be alone over and over and over God showed his hand to them and his power to them and his works to them. You see, God didn't just free them from Egypt, though. He also made them a promise. He says this, hey, I want to free you, but he says, if you trust me, I'll give you a new promised land. I'll give you rest in me in this new place, in a land of milk and honey, which is a metaphor for uh, abundance and flourishing the story about Israel, it's kind of filled with prophetic promises that point to something else. Along the way, he gave them manna, which is bread from heaven. I'm hungry. Here you go. And this is symbolizing how Jesus will be the bread of life that will fulfill his people later. And he gave them water out of rocks, also pointing to, to Jesus. He'll be the rock of our salvation that gives us living water that if you drink of it, you'll never thirst again. He promised to bring them to a promised land, which is pointing again to the new creation when God restores all things and fixes all things, all of those works God did to free Israel from Egypt and bondage were foreshadows of what he's done for us and promises to do for us now. So their story gives shadows of our story, that God has come to free us from our sin, a much crueler um, thing over the top of us than even Pharaoh over Israel. How God will make a way for us now uh, to no longer be slaves to our sin. How God will, by his power and his mercy and his love and his kindness, free us from our slavery and deliver us to a place of promise, to a better place. So even with the abundance of evidence of God's work and his love on behalf of Israel, all of this stuff that they would have seen and undoubtedly known that this was not some dude who did this. This was God and his hand for us. If With all of the weight, all the things that they saw, they grumbled against God. They began to accuse him. When things got hard, they began to accuse him of being capricious, at one point, they, when things got hard in the wilderness, they revolted, and, and a lot of them looked at God and Moses and said, why did you take us out of Egypt? Like, would you prayed for it for years? Why, why did you take us out of that place? At least we had steady meals there. All of a sudden, they grumbled against him. Then in Numbers 14, we hear that they sent spies to check out that promised land, this place that God had promised to them. The spies come back. And remember, the spies had seen all of the great things that God had done as well. The spies come back and they're like, yeah, guys, I don't think we can do it. There's some big people over there. They're 
terrified, saying the enemy is too strong. There's, there's no way. We should have just died in, in, in the desert. They saw all the other things that God did, but still felt like he was going to let them down. Hear the weight of that story. God had shown himself over and over and over. They're on the border of the promised land, of, of paradise. They're right there. Yet most of them will never actually put a foot inside that land. Why? Because they did not believe that God was good and they hardened their heart. Their fear and the way they responded to a hard time outweighed their confidence in God. These people and their hard hearts then provoked God. And the text says, sadly, that they never entered the rest of God, the promised redemptive rest. Over and over and over, God showed himself. And when new situations that were difficult came, they began to just say, you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. The author of Hebrews takes the story of Israel, and he passes it to the original audience first, and then to us, saying, hey, take care so that you don't do the same thing as they did in the wilderness. They saw the hand of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God. They saw the intervention of God. They heard the promises of God. And yet, despite all that he'd done, the mountain of evidence that he had given them, the proof that he had given him that he's good and he's loving and he's kind and he's powerful and he keeps his word, they doubted him, began to test him in their unbelief. Which raises the question, Okay. Well, if this warning is to me today, how do I today not harden my heart? I'm not in the wilderness. I didn't see the the seas part. How do I, in 2022, how do I not harden my heart? How do I make sure that I don't get closed off to the goodness of the Lord with a calloused heart and a hard heart? How do I do that? And the answer that he gives may surprise you. How do we avoid a hard heart? Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. If you can't see, he's a little tongue-in-cheek being funny. It means all the time, every day. The Holy Spirit is telling us that the provision to protect us from a hard heart, the defense to make sure that we don't fall away, is it's each other. It's community. And not just being each other, exhorting each other in the gospel. Now I want to like sidebar, be clear here. Because there are times that I think we've gone a little bit sideways in this. In hindsight, over our years as a church, we've had multiple people who have idolized community without actually loving Jesus very much. So the gospel talk, the talk of mission, the talk of Jesus, church attendance, serving, all of the other stuff were kind of necessary evils and a means to an end uh, to, to get the community that they actually wanted. I want to be really careful. The author is not telling you that community is your salvation. Community, your brothers and sisters, they cannot save you. They will never save you, but they help you be reminded that Jesus has and of what he has done. We need to, we need to not get the order of operation wrong or we will go sideways. We'll hurt each other and things will break. He's saying, okay, exhort one another Exhort the community. This is the back and forth gospel declaration that we do, the encouraging that we do, gospel living, encouraging in the gospel, accountability in the gospel, calls to repent with gospel love and gospel motives, serving each other, using the gifts that we have, the back and forth of gospeling that comes into the community is what we do to protect each other's hearts. This is what the author is telling us. There's a part that can think, well, 
maybe just community and, and MC and like maybe it's just a new fad. All, all the way back, this was 2,000 years ago, he still said, you want to defend a hard heart, you do it together by exhorting each other. Here's a sad reality that many churches over the pandemic, including us, had to face and had to learn. In the time that we were isolated, right? Like zoom your mind back to 2020. In the time that we were isolated, everything locked down, everybody's world, just the e-brake got yanked. We're like, what is happening? All of that happened. We were alone and we could not gather together. At that time, many people were no longer entering into any form of exhortation to one another. Then, right, fast forward, the, the, the pandemic started to, to clear. I don't know if it's clear is the right word, like loosen. We could at least come out of the house or do something. And, and many people chose not to come out of isolation. Now, and fully, I understand none of us had ever done this. What I'm looking at is not whether the right or wrongness of their decision. I'm just going, hey, let's use this to see what happened there. They didn't come out of isolation. They stayed alone. They extended their time away from brothers and sisters. They extended their time away from exhortation to one another. Again, this is not a commentary on government or lockdowns. or It's not a commentary of whether we made the right decision. It's a looking at the result. What was the result? Over and over and over again, when people extended their time alone, people became bitter towards God, bitter towards the church. All of a sudden, tertiary issues and even issues of preference over social issues became God and gospel. People became really susceptible to, to heresy. They found themselves angry, distant, full of doubts, full of anxiety, wounded, and with hard hearts. Grievances were, were filled their heart, not the gospel. Now, several of them from our community and others, hear this, check the date, November 2022, right? Many of them still haven't gone back to the community. This wasn't just our experience. It's the experience all over the West. The point is, we experienced, and many others experienced in real life, what the author warned about here. Without gospel community, without exhorting one another, without taking communion with each other and singing with each other and gospeling each other and living in accountability together and pressing each other forward and encouraging each other, we're prone to having calloused and hard hearts. In no uncertain terms, the text is reminding us that faith is a communal project. You can't do it alone. Here it is. I need you. You need me. We need each other. God has made it that way. We are used to build each other up. We are not each other's saviors, but we are called to remind each other of the Savior by encouraging each other of who Jesus is and what he's done, pointing each other to, to go forward. Here's the reality. We all get tired. We get distracted. The beauty of communities, you can have a brother or sister going, hey, brother, I know you're tired. Come forward with me. Right? You're pressing. This is exhortation. I'm pressing you forward. I'm reminding you of what is true. The author then reminds us, why do we need this? culture, again, thinks being alone and standing strong is sexy and powerful. Why is the Bible telling us that we need each other? Really simple, because sin is deceitful. 
you will get deceived. I will get deceived. Alone, we will get deceived. All of us have sins that beckon our hearts. Yours may not be the same as mine. Mine may not be the same as yours. We all have things that tempt us to grab a hold of them, sins that promise us something that we want or something that we think that we need, whether it be gratification of desire, feeling of power, meaning in the world. Like it, 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 it could be anything. Sin deceitfully promises us that it will give us something that we desperately think we need. The author tells us that exhorting one another regularly is a defense for your heart and mine from that. It defends you from falling for sin's deceitful lies. Exhorting one another helps us remember what is true. And we need to remember, when he's saying exhorting, he's not just saying, say hi when you walk in. Exhorting is the back and forth, uh, doing life uh, together in the gospel. It stirs us towards what is good and right in the gospel, helps us hold our original confidence, and helps to defend us from the deceitfulness of sin. A.W. Pink says something that's kind of interesting for the reality of the text. Testing, testings reveal the heart or the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but it does manifest him. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely, but are you? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord, or are we instead complacently resting in His temporal mercies? And when the storm breaks, it is not so much that we fail under it as our habitual lack of leaning upon God or daily walking in dependence of Him is just made evident. Storms show what's going on in the heart. I like this because he's, Pink is just saying it exposes what's really happening. Right? We can catch the, 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 the cultural lingo for Redemption's Hill, and we can kind of hang out, and, and when things are good, like, like it's fine. We can just kind of keep going. But the trial of life has a way of revealing what's really in our hearts as time goes by. There are many in Israel who, when trial came, they decided not to trust God or submit to Him. He showed His kindness over and over and over. It still wasn't good enough. Then there are many in the original audience who are being persecuted. They entered into their own trial. And they're having a, a, a T intersection where they're going to decide, am I going to leave this behind? Am, am, am I going to quit? Am I going to not trust God? Am I going to doubt just like Israel did? Or will I move forward? we fast forward today then to our own hearts, some of us may be in that exact spot or found ourselves there as well where life is now hard. Things are difficult. Things are heavier. Things are busier than maybe they used to be. The heart is just weighed down. And for some of us, maybe that means that our eye is on the door as well. Contemplating like the Hebrews leaving Christ. Maybe not totally. Maybe we're just contemplating checking out in some way. Right? I'll just, you know, just kind of, I'll just lessen. The call is the same to Israel and the original audience and us. The call is the same. Don't harden your heart, though. If things are hard, don't do it. Do not doubt God. Don't close your eyes to the works that He's done for you. Look at the mountain of evidence that He loves you. He's given you a new heart. He has done so much for you. He's cared for you. Well, things may be hard, but lean in. Don't run out. It's a constant message in Hebrews. Dig your heels in. Don't run. 
Lean into God by leaning into one another so that the body can build you up in the gospel of Jesus. The enemy loves to, when we feel this way, drag us into isolation. Why? So that you can't be exhorted in the gospel because he knows the power of it. Why do you think on MC in a hard day the battle is so hard for you to show up? Because the enemy is going, if I could just keep them home, we got a really good chance of hardening their heart a little bit. I love the progression over the text this week and last week. Last week we heard that we see ourselves clearly to the extent that we see Jesus. It was drawing us to look at Jesus to see what he's done and who he is, and then through who he is and what he's done, then encouraging us to then see ourselves. See your identity through him and not through your own eyes. And now the call is to understand that part of the way that we see Jesus is by exhorting one another today, right now, each day, and continually. What's on the line? The author says missing God's rest is on the line. You feel your need for rest, right? And if you have a super slow life, you're like, I got no demands. I'm good. I'm just chilling. We all are running fast. And if the whole time that we're running fast, God offers us temporary and eternal rest, saying, come here, draw near. All who are heavy laden, come, I'll give you rest. We can be around church stuff at times, see God's work at times, seem to start well in the faith and miss the boat, so to speak, though. We can miss God's rest altogether if we aren't careful. To miss God's rest is, is first an actual statement about salvation. How sad would it be to be as close as Israel was to the promised land, to salvation and the Savior, and yet never enter in? You're right there. He isn't saying that we will lose our salvation if we don't maintain our hearts in some way. But he is warning that some of you have been around the things of God for years. But you've never actually submitted to him as Lord or Savior. And you're thinking of walking away or checking out when life has gotten hard because you ever actually submitted it and opted in. If you've never submitted and opted in, the door is always at your periphery. It's always there because you've never actually said, this is who I am now. This is what he has done. So the door will always be right there. Some of you are thinking so hardly about leaving because you've never actually seen the true beauty in the first place. If that's you right here and right now, the, the hope would be that you submit to the Lord. If the Lord is showing you that, that you would realize that, hey, man, maybe I've been around and never actually jumped in. If that's the case, then call on God to save you. What do we see over and over in the book of Romans? Call upon the name of the Lord. Do not harden your heart today. The author is saying, do not assume the kindness of God. What does it look like to assume the kindness of God? Is to never actually ask him to save you and say, but I've been around, so surely he will, you know, love me. That's testing the Lord. Call out for him to save you. The Lord has made a way to free you from your sin, to make you new, but you cannot walk in that without actually jumping in. I've said it a lot. Do not assume that you are saved if you've never actually called upon the name of the Lord. Such a heavy thing in my heart over the last year or so. God does amazing things, but there, there can be assumptions of faith where you never just said, I need a Savior. And if the Holy Spirit would show you that, I mean, the same urgency of today, don't, don't deal with it later. Just ask Him to save. 
Ask him to grab a hold of you and make you a son. Say the same thing that so many of us have said, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I cannot fix myself. Will you save me? Save me, Lord. Say the words. So there's an element where this text is about salvation eternally. That is actually the, the primary element. This is about salvation. But there's also a side wrinkle that runs parallel to that. Some of us are experiencing hard hearts now. And we've been saved. We have submitted to the will of the Lord. We have called out, save me, God. I need a Savior. We've done that. We've asked him to that. But now the craziness of life or distraction or something else has just begun to, to move in where you can't hardly see the countless things that God has done for you. Like Israel, who they, they weren't remembering the plagues. They weren't remembering the dry ground. They weren't remembering all the things. For some of us, I think we get so busy that we cannot see. Remember when he called your heart? Remember the person who shared the gospel with you? Remember the way that he showed you your son uh, identity or, or that you're a daughter of God? Remember the things over and over and over? You, you can't see those. We forget how mightily he has acted for us. We've made choices that don't remember the importance of today, meaning we've prioritized other things over faith and the gospel. We have maybe lacked in exhorting one another and maybe things like personal devotion and personal worship and things like that have just kind of got kicked to the side. And the net result is an anxious soul. I don't know, just like there's this anxiety that's there. Things feel muted, and I feel tired and withdrawn and angry. If you land there, the Holy Spirit is wanting to tell you as well today, return to Jesus. And then we, here's, the, here's the, the, like the inside fact that we all get hard hearts sometimes. The, 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 the biggest danger that we can run into is to assume that we'll never get a hard heart. If you find yourself, man, I, just, I feel like it's just kind of callous. Like my affections aren't stirred by much that is good now. And like, man, I don't really want to exhort one another. And like, I'm not really interested in, in, in talking gospel or any, or any of these other things. That God is just saying, hey, return to Jesus. Don't harden your heart anymore. Return to the beauty of seeing and beholding Jesus. Re- return to the, to the strength that you'll find in exhorting one another in community. Return. Repent of functional unbelief and ask the Lord to continue the work that he started long ago. We're not asking you to be saved again. We're asking you to, to ask the Lord to remind you of what he has done. He's already given you a heart of flesh to replace the one that was stone. There's a part of us that may continually need to ask, Lord, will you renew my heart, though? Thank you for the work that you've done. Will you pursue me again? Will you soften me again? Will you give me the rest that is only found in you? Because I'm looking everywhere and I'm not finding that rest. Will you, uh, you've done it so many times. Will you soften me again? This is a repeated pattern in the Christian life, I think. Give me rest again. Revive my soul again. Even King David, give me a new heart. Soften it again. Let me see you again. Here's the reality. If you find yourself there, he's eager to come and meet you there. Over and over, come to me. Come to me again and again and again. He will meet you. If you find yourself in that spot, again, most of us will at some point. I do not know anyone that's lived in the faith a long period of time and hasn't struggled with a season of a hard heart. God calling you to fight a hard heart and to see the Savior is not a punishment. He's not trying to hurt you. He's not trying to wound you. He's trying to love you. Because the reality is a hard heart misses the beauty of what Jesus has done and how much he loves you. And as we've said before, if the last couple years you um, have been brought out of a season of hard hardness, or maybe the last month or two months, and 
And you've noticed, man, I had a really hard heart. And man, he's doing a good work. And it's being stirred and it's pliable. And like, man, I don't have a hard heart right now. Man, praise God for that. Rejoice in that. We're not always looking for something wrong. But when things are wrong, we want to acknowledge it. And then we want to celebrate when he's done really good things. You may find yourself in a wonderful spot in a season of fruit and where your affections are stirred and worship comes naturally. And God's just filling you up. Man, thank God for that. Thank God for that. Worship him in light of that. He's given you a tender heart. What you can say in worship today is, hey, thank you for that. Will you, will you kind of keep that rolling? Help defend me from things that will harden my heart later. Help me stay in community. Help me to encourage others who need the same. We'll close with a warning one more time. Uh, Garrett Harrison, you guys can come back up. Church today, don't harden your heart. That message is for you. And it's for me. There's not a person that this is like, no, I don't need to do that. The Holy Spirit says to you and I, don't harden your heart. Don't be okay with distance between you and the Father. Don't forget about the mountain of evidence that he's shown. Maybe even as we play the first song and think, maybe just say, Holy Spirit, will you remind me again of all the beautiful things that you've done for me? Will you remind me of the goodness of what you have done? He's loved you, and he has done much. Today, not tomorrow, deal with whatever heart issues. Maybe the Holy Spirit is just kind of churning in you. That is our hope for today. We'll take communion. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26, where I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way. Also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Here's the hope, friends, that we will today come to the table and take. And whether you have a hard heart or a soft heart, the reality that you see any part of the gospel is only because of Jesus. So the hope is that you would come to the table and just be reminded, Jesus has done it all. His body was broken. His blood was shed to give you life again. So you can come to the table and say, Lord, continue to work in my heart. Keep it soft. Keep it understanding of what you are doing. Thank you for your goodness and mercy. And if you find yourself with a hard heart, what better place than the table to come to? Because what does the table tell you? I sacrificed myself on the cross knowing that you'd have a hard heart now and I don't regret it. Over and over and over, his blood and his body cover you. Let that encourage you. Let that exhort you in the reality. You are loved. You are cared for. He is worthy of your worship and your praise. I pray that you'll see that clearly today. I pray that your heart would be full of encouragement and the reality of the gospel. And that you'd be brave to deal with if there's a hard heart going on. It's going to happen for all of us at some point. I pray that the Holy Spirit would deal with that, soften you again. That worship and joy would return to your soul and your heart. Would you stand with me? God, I thank you for this word. Will you do your work in us, Lord? Holy Spirit, we pray that you draw near to our hearts. We just confess to you, it is so hard in our crazy pace of life to see you continually. Holy Spirit, will you just draw near for that? I pray that you would slow down hearts to see you. That you would soften the ground of hard hearts. That you would return joy to souls that may need it. To those that you've done a good work and you've already brought them out of a hard heart, I pray that they would rejoice in that. 
Thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your patience, Lord. Thank you that whether it be the second or 15th time that our heart has gotten hard, you're still eager to soften us, to remind us of the beauty of what you've done. Lord, we pray that our worship would be pleasing to you, Holy Spirit, drawn here. Would you eclipse the reality of what we have going this week or the worries that we have? There are those who are in a hard season, Lord, I pray that the beauty of you would eclipse any of those other things. Let us see a full picture of what you've done. I pray that we would learn deeper ways of exhorting one another and we would see it as good. Lord, would you meet us in our missional communities? Would you meet us in our DNA groups or our Bible studies or coffees together? Would you meet us there and build us up, Lord? Thank you for the reality of one another, that we don't have to walk alone. We have brothers and sisters to walk next to. You are good and you are kind. Thank you for your mercy. We love you, Lord. Draw near. Amen.